Welcome to another episode of 353rd. I'm Scott Barstow. And I'm Anders Brownworth. Anders, today we're talking about the flow of both money and data across international borders. Yes, there is a Guardian piece specifically about the flows of money that I sent you and we've been sort of kicking around here. The numbers are nothing short of staggering in terms of the, the total. It's like half a trillion dollars uh, across the entire world. U.S. to Mexico is uh, $22.8 billion just in 2012. These are high numbers, high numbers. Yeah, and the other thing that's very interesting is that you've got these exorbitant fees being charged on remittance transfers. So, for instance, in this same Guardian article, you've got South Africa charging 23% on money that's being sent to Botswana. So you have... And this is not uncommon in other parts of you know, finance. You've got the poor paying an exorbitant tax uh, or the people who can least afford it paying an exorbitant tax on money transfers. And I would argue the same is true on things as simple as communication across international borders. Yeah, absolutely agree. So the obvious points here are where is the Internet in all of this? And certainly in the case of finance, we are not anywhere close to an answer for this because uh, Bitcoin or, or virtual currencies might, might be a solution there. But the, in the telecom world, VoIP has been around for 15 years. And, and why in the world is that such a, such a fee? Like you were talking about some, you know, well over a dollar rate per minute. What was the yeah, um, so there's Mexico a, yeah. U.S. rate? Yeah, yeah, so if you live in Mexico and you make a call to the U.S. on a landline, you're paying, on average, you know, it's either land or sell. I believe it's both. You're paying, on average, over a dollar, sometimes two dollars a minute to call into the U.S., which seems absurd. Yeah. And and so I've been I've been working on a project actually where uh, to try and break down some of those international borders. And you've got products like Skype, which you think, oh well, why can't they just talk for free? Well, the reality is that if you're living in Mexico, you may not have you know, internet in your house, first of all. And second of all, the person you're calling here in the US, you know, chances of them being on the internet when you need to talk to them yeah. are, you know, are slim and none. They're, they're out working, they're doing whatever it is that they have as a day job, and the chances that they're sitting in an office here waiting for you to be able to call them on Skype is almost nil. Right, pretty low. And so you need the, ability and why don't we have the ability for me to pick up the phone in Mexico, dial a number in the US and just have that call be at or near free, just like it would be here. Nobody even thinks about, you know, when you and I were growing up, you had to worry about when you made phone calls. I'm sure you remember those days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember when I was in when I was in college, we I would call home on Sundays because Sunday was the cheapest time to call. Yeah. And all of that thinking is gone. In, if you live in the U.S., there's no concept of long-distance calling anymore. Well, so let's unpack why that is. So back in the day, telecom circuits were literally that. They were, they were nailed circuits that you would put up one-to-one, -one, you know, one, one circuit per call that would transfer your voice from one place to another. So if during the busiest of busy days you need 100 million lines in a certain locality, 
you had to actually have that. And then on Sunday, when it's the cheapest time to call, those businesses aren't using those lines. So those lines are going effectively unused. So they lower the price. So that's why there was that price variance. And also remember the local and long distance sort of dichotomy. There were That's right. Yeah, you actually had different companies supplying long distance. Uh, one company supplying local and a different company supplying long distance. Sort of a quasi you'd have get, really have two phone bills wrapped up into one phone bill. Yeah, I remember I would have local service through Southwestern Bell and then my long distance was with MCI. Right. Exactly. And then Sprint started doing their can you hear the pin drop? I've never been able to hear a pin drop over the phone, but you know, you fair go. enough. They started making inroads there, and, and that was the traditional network. And then we moved to this packet switch network, which essentially doesn't require a nailed line all the time. Matter of fact, when you stop talking, that capacity can be used elsewhere. So it's really a much more efficient system overall. So that's why, A, there was a lot less reason to kind of throttle things via price, and, you know, B, just a lot more inherent capacity that just suddenly started to, you know, exist. But then the Internet comes along and you and I know you can just open up a program and send a UDP packet to the other side of the world for zero. You know, no, right. no price difference for having done it or not having done it. It's not that it's free because you do have to pay to get on the network. But once you're on, you use it or don't. It's all it's just the same price. That's right. And there's latent capacity generally everywhere that you need to get to. Yeah. So then the question is, why has this not been able to break through in the international sense in the way in which it has in the, you know, we're in the United States, the way it has within the United States, uh, you know, calling local and long distance is kind of now broken down. There's just one fee that you pay and, and you can get a VoIP line and you can call for basically free so why has this not been able to cross the little border down to Mexico, for example? Yeah, That's and the question. It, the other thing that you're starting to see is companies like T-Mobile, who always seems to be at the leading edge of you know trying to break stuff. Yeah. And so you've got T-Mobile doing things like you've got international roaming for a flat fee now with T-Mobile. So you pay, I think it's 60 or 70 bucks a month and you can roam internationally with them. So mm. and you're, so you're starting to see these things. But. The problem is that, again, going back to the use case that I'm working on is when I'm sitting at my house in Mexico and all I, all I have is either my cell phone or my house phone and I need to talk to my son or my brother or my sister who's living in the U.S., how do I just pick up that phone and dial a number and have it ring across the border and have that not be outrageously expensive? And I think... Right. VoIP is really the answer, and I think there's one of the projects that we're working on is how do I make that call free in Mexico and then make it essentially free? So leverage and take advantage of the fact that you have things like toll-free numbers everywhere in this. It doesn't matter what country in there. The concept of a toll-free number exists where you can call a number and it doesn't cost you anything. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you start to take advantage of and essentially hack the network that exists to get the behavior that you want. Yeah. So can I call a toll-free number in Mexico and have that automatically forward to some other number in the United States based on, uh, based on you know, where I'm calling from or whatever, you know, time of day. There's all sorts of ways that you can configure 
how that call routes. But I think that's where when you start to think about either money or telecom, as we're talking about now, I think you, where this stuff always starts is that people start to hack what's there. Mm -hmm. And then eventually the behavior of the incumbent providers of the service starts to change because they get hollowed out. Right. Um, and so they have to figure out different ways to make money because it's no longer when MCI was making a penny a minute for long distance in the US and that was cheap. Now we don't live in that world at all. It's essentially it's all you can eat for almost zero anywhere right. in the US. So let's talk about the utopia. Now that would be everybody walking around with a digital device in their pocket that is connected in some way, some wireless way to an always on IP network. And when you're living in a world like that, and you can have a VoIP client on every device, and you can be relatively always connected, suddenly all of these hacks no longer make sense. But the fact of the matter is, in order to get there, you really have to have the hacks. You have to, I mean, it's, it's clear where we're going, I think. It's not clear, like, how long the hacks are going to take before we can actually call this one closed. And, and clearly, we're, no, we're, we're, we're not close. I think that's right. And you see that because you still have, you know, we happen to be in, or bandwidth happens to be in the telecom space. So you have, what you see is that you still got to handle, you still have destinations where it's outrageously expensive to call. Yeah. Even though that call is, for the most part, probably going over a VoIP network almost anywhere in the world now. Uh, it doesn't matter which carrier it is, the chances that it's actually going across any sort of old network are probably slim and none, but you're still paying, you know, if I call the island of St. John or something like that, I'm paying 20 cents a minute. Right, you're paying or the legacy rate. Or you know, yep. what is it, uh, Cuba had like an over $3 lim uh, per minute uh, tariff, I think. It's, it's right. just crazy. And then, so let's, let's shift the discussion. Let's talk about finance and those same political boundaries and the international remittance market. It's very easy to see the international remittance market as probably some of the lowest hanging fruit for a technology like Bitcoin to be able to disrupt. And again, there has to be some kind of a, a hack because at this point, not everybody is using Bitcoin for everything. In fact, almost nobody is. So you, you need an interim system. Right now, the system that exists, I don't know if you uh, wanted to send some money back to Mexico and you had some cash, let's say you had $100, right? You probably go to an international remittance uh, company like Western Union. That's right. Plink that $100 bill down on the table and say, send this to my friend in Mexico. And they would uh, take a fee and it would pop out the other end some hours later. And there, your friend in Mexico can pick it up in the local fiat currency. For a system like Bitcoin to supplant that, uh, and, and the reason is, is very clearly mostly price, Bitcoin, would you would need to take that $100, switch it into Bitcoin somehow. You might go to localbitcoins.com, find a local person that, want, that will take that $100 bill and give you uh, the equiv some equivalent amount of Bitcoin, less maybe half a percent for a fee. And then you would transfer that Bitcoin down to Mexico, where the reverse of exactly the same thing would happen. Your friend would go to 
uh, localbitcoins.com or know somebody that wants to buy bitcoins for local fiat and the reverse process would happen. They might take their half a percent. So in the case of Western Union, it's generally more than 10%. It's, uh, you know, sometimes 18, 20%, depending on the type of transaction and where you're going to. In the Bitcoin case, you can clear that whole transaction for about a percent, which is disruptively cheaper and faster, more convenient. That's right. I think the, the what Bitcoin's missing right now, so the, the rule of thumb for, at least I've always heard for disruptive technology, is that it has to be 10 times as cheap and 10 times as fast. Yeah, or, or ignore something that people actually, some growing segment of the population doesn't care about. Right. And so I think what's missing for Bitcoin right now is ease of use. And I think if you think about particularly the underserved and how they might benefit from, so let's take that Western Union transaction where I put in $100 and $90 at max shoots out the other side. And I've, I've done Western Union transfers to places like Montenegro where it's outrageous what you're paying. Yeah. I mean, to the point where you are actually glad to go to the bank and do a wire transfer. It's right. so expensive. And a wire transfer is generally those are flat fee. It's not percentage of so. But that's an advantage that I have that the average person, you know, it took me a while to figure out how to do wire transfers. And there's all sorts of things that you you have to put in place in order to be able to do that. Yeah. And the, the average person also needs to, well, first of all, I mean, in our $100 example, a wire fee, a flat wire fee in 15 bucks in some case, kills the whole thing right there. Now, if you're trying to send $10,000, 15 bucks is not a big fee, but it certainly is if you're trying to send $20. I mean, there is a uh, sort of a natural floor to an amount that you might wire transfer. That's There's right. different kinds of wire transfers, ACH, generally in the US, which is a pull type of a, a system. There's uh, SWIFT in uh, pretty much in the rest of the world, but, but you know, in the SEPA zone, there's the, the SEPA bank transfer agreement in, in Europe. These things are, are a lot faster. Uh, that, that's, that's the other thing. Talk about broken technologies. ACH, in particular, is a system where you request a, a transfer of some sort. And then you, you're, the bank finds out about it. And a day later, the bank finds out about the, the destination bank's response to that. Either, you know, we, we have no idea what account this is or whatever, or no problem, the funds are, are probably there. Then another day goes by, and then you find out from your bank. that So it's three days we're looking at. Yep. And then the whole thing can be reversed. That's so, right. So, it be, and it can be for stupid things. I've done SWIFT transfers all over the world, and you get you know one digit wrong on the account number that you're sending it to, yeah, or one digit thing, you know, one something wrong with the name of the bank, or the person you're sending it to. It's all got to line up perfectly. Yeah, and if or, it doesn't, or it, if it do and, and they it just send it back, they just yeah, reject it, but, and and you don't find that out until at least one day later, if not two. Right, and then you have to start the whole process over again. But it's it's and, actually worse than that, because in the case of a success, especially with ACH, you're actually never told. That's you right. just never hear that it failed, so you surmise it must have succeeded. But you know what? Like thirty days later, you can still reverse the transaction. Yep. So, it's... yeah, and I've actually, you know, my process has always been: I send it, 
I wait a couple of days and then I check with the person on the other side and say, did you get it? Yeah. Because and, I, right. I never know. Yeah. I mean, it comes out of my bank account, but I never know that it found its way to the other bank account. Yeah. And it's just craziness. And the fees that you pay and all of the and all of those things make the process completely unwieldy for someone who's trying to send small amounts of money without having to pay a lot in fees. And I think one of the things that would be interesting to explore, and you and I have talked about this before, is how do you make a technology like Bitcoin available via a technology that is everywhere like sms mm. how do you sms enable bitcoin yeah sure so that so, somebody can send you know so that somebody can make that transaction you were talking about yeah that uh instead of finding a local bitcoin guy they have a way to just text some you know text to some number and the transaction starts and money starts to move yeah just exactly. based on yeah so 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 what that what that would be you know presumably you, you can do this with a centralized service it's always easy to do things with a centralized service but you can do it with a centralized service where somebody gets a text and says you have such and such amount of money at uh, just go here to pick it up and you go there and if you don't have an account you set it up if you do it's just dropped into your account. That's exactly what's needed. It's uh, you need to really grease the rails on on how this whole system works because it's very clunky at this point. Especially Bitcoin as a technology that that germinated and and uh, has exploded on the internet as a decentralized thing. And and there are a lot of efforts afoot to connect that to the traditional finance uh, world with all its uh, pluses and minuses. I mean, clearly the pluses are are the social benefit that you get when everybody can transfer money for, for a lot lower of a cost. But the minuses are, you know, it's not easy to do. Yeah. And there is a very significant sort of a consumer problem to be solved there that takes a lot of work. We're working on that at, at Circle, obviously, but I, I think it's a uh, you know, a very, very long process, and, and we're still kind of at the beginning of it. What do you feel like the next big iteration is in, you know, the telecom space or just human communication? You know, we've got apps like Skype and we've got, yeah. you know, WhatsApp and we've got to take the place of mess messaging. And so you're starting to see these big disruptions happening and telecom company revenues are starting to really decline. But then they all, you know, they always fight back with new plans or new, they throw up new walls and there's always those kinds of things. I'm wondering, either in finance or in telecom, what do you think we can expect in remittance fees? What do you think we can expect to see in terms of ease of use? I feel like Bitcoin is the technology, mm -hmm. but what do you feel like we see in terms of ease of use over the next year that brings it maybe still more mass market? Yeah, so... so Two things. The telecom space, I think the big thing that has to happen there are mesh networks or, or really drastically improved unlicensed wireless. So that, that would help that. In the Bitcoin world, I mean, it clearly for the two, just to absorb the international remittance market, Bitcoin's value has to be far higher because the entire network right now is somewhere slightly less than $8 billion. And if Every Bitcoin in the world, all told together, only is $8 billion. You can see how that has to move at least an order of magnitude or two yes. to be able to get even a small percentage of the remittance market. Because, And the reason that is, of course, is 
companies that would be moving money around the world are not in the business of holding money and sitting on it. They're interested in a liquid market. They want to be able to buy some Bitcoin off of the market, use it to transfer value to some other place in the world, and then quickly sell it. They're not interested in holding it for a long time. So that requires two things. One, the price to be a lot higher. You know, let's just say, uh, you know, $6,000 instead of 600 right? I think we're at under 500 now. Also, you need the liquidity to be there. You need an active enough market so that you're sure that if you move some money down to some other place in the world and you wait for the certain number of confirmations, you know, let's say an hour later, you can flash that back to fiat in some what other whatever fiat you country you're in or whatever that has to be significant so i think that exists you asked about kind of what strides will be made on the consumer side and i think really i would just guess next year you are going to see by the end of next year you are going to see a suite of very easy ways to push value from person to person, split the check, you know, split this cab ride, let me pick up a coffee for you and you'll get you get one for me, you know, next time. All of these kinds of things are going to you're going to see, I think, a sewing together of the benefits of the rails of Bitcoin. In other words, the ability to do transaction processing for a very low cost and the credit card networks. You'll see those networks really having a, eventually having a viable competitor. You'll see them sewed, sewn together too as well. There'll be some hacks that do that, that essentially allow credit card transactions to run over Bitcoin rails and Bitcoin value transfers to happen over credit card networks. Um, That's I, really interesting. Yeah, having yeah. Uh, the equivalent of a Visa card that you carry around in your wallet. Exactly. That, that, and that's exactly what it is. And it may yeah. not be your wallet. It's probably on your phone. But right. Yeah. Right. But uh, your virtual wallet. Yeah. That works, you know, that works the way a credit card does. That's That would be very interesting. And it's a then you're into a medium that everyone understands. And it's not this sort of weird, clunky... Right. You know, oh, I've got to have this 32 character ID and who knows what that means. And I've got to scan a QR code. It's just it's something exactly. that everybody understands. Yeah. And it's got to be denominated in the currencies that you care about. It can't be denominated in bitcoins that nobody knows what the value is because yep. it shifts all the time. It's got to be denominated in, in dollars or, or pesos or euros or whatever. It, that's how you need to value it, um, because that's what people understand. Yeah. And your point, I think your point about liquidity in the market and knowing that you know, that's one thing that you know if I send $100 in USD today I know that when I send that money that's so many rupees or you know right. wherever it is that I'm sending it I know what that is because the I, the currency market is known yes and so you just have to have the same thing and I have to know that if it takes the network an hour to validate it that it's not going to move that I can essentially lock that in when I make when I start the transaction, here's the value at the time I start it. Yeah. And that's what it's going to spit out the other end. And as. so so to get exactly that, what you need is a futures market. You yes. need some even if it's very short, even if it's in the span of an hour, you need yep. a futures market. You need somebody to say, I will buy this much Bitcoin for this price in an hour. As soon yes. as people start saying that, writing contracts in that language then the price will be far more stable because you are having, you're essentially, people are signing up 
to buy the risk, to pay, to take the risk of the of uh, Bitcoin not moving substantively in a negative direction, because then they're beyond the, the on the hook to pay for this Bitcoin at a higher price than they could get in the uh, normal market. So once those guys sign up in a big way, and, and really the thing that's going to do that is when internet in um, institutional capital finds its way into Bitcoin markets. Once right now a lot of that institutional capital is sitting on the sidelines because it it's looking for a regulatory certainty generally before it sort of dives in full steam. And without that happening, you know, we're going to be in this murky, we don't know what's going on, and nobody's going to write future contracts. As soon as that happens, the value is going to go up, you're going to get contracts written in you know, futures contracts written, you're going to suddenly have a much more stable and sizable value system. And you're going to be able to like you're saying flash convert, you know, be sure that I'm going to be able to get my, the equivalent value in whatever my fiat currency is out of the other side of the world when I try to do one of these transfers. Yep. And then when somebody's making a half a percent, you know, when a company's making a half a percent on each side, yeah. because of the ease, that's going to be a worthwhile business. And right now it's not. Like for Western Union to charge a half a percent or something like that, there's no way they can survive because right. of the infrastructure they have to support to make the whole thing work. Right. I think once we start to see the infrastructure there, then you start to be able to easily see where these fees start to come down very rapidly. Mm. Yeah. So, and I think that's when it starts to get interesting. I think the same, we'll see the same thing with, you know, with communication where just eventually, and I think what props a lot of these international rates up that we haven't talked about, and I'll just touch on this briefly, is you still have in almost every country, and it's still true here to a large extent, is you've got monopolistic enterprises or monopolistic markets in in telecom in particular where the government has mandated that two or three companies own the market yeah and i think once those start to break down and what's been interesting for me i've i've spent a lot of time working in in mexico in particular and that's why we've talked about it so substantially on this show is that mexico has just passed a law that is breaking apart all of the telecom monopolies in Mexico. So you're going to start to see these countries as they get better leadership and uh, presidents or leaders willing to take on big industry. I think that's when you start to see big shifts. And so that's why Mexico is very interesting right now is because you've got the whole market starting to unwind. You've got Carlos Slim being forced to take his share of the market in, in mobile from 80 to 50% tops. Wow. Then you can start to see now the consumer isn't being raped. And I think that's when it starts to get really interesting. So. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be great to see how it all sort of unfolds. Uh, I get the idea that it's going to be a, a quick succession of dominoes, because after a while, you just can't sustain, you know, at the at the prices where things are going. And, and there's going to be a lot of pressure to essentially evolve or die. So yeah, and I think that what's true of companies is true of nation states, people leave you know, assuming there's uh, ability to freely relocate and you're not trapped, you know, you're not North Korea where you can't leave. Right. The people, it's so easy to move now that people will just migrate to the countries that are competitive and those who aren't and don't provide a, an environment where people can grow and create a better life for themselves. They're going to be left, you know, with the dregs. 
Agreed. All right. Thanks for listening. I will see you next time on 353rd.